I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. In the second sinister installment of Agoraphobia 2020, we turn our entire program over to the paranormal forces behind the Cannonball podcast, Deadly Daniel Doughty and Professor Claude Myron Goozer, who shall provide us a demonic disquisition into the works and legacy of a primordial parent of the weird fiction subgenre, Ambrose Bierce. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Cannonball's special Agoraphobia 2020. Uh, the Cannonball is a podcast where we're trying to read all the books in uh, Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. And Agoraphobia 2020 is a network-wide attempt to get creepy with it. So this is Claude yeah. Mayer, and uh, <laughs> with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing, man? Hey, hey. I I, I couldn't think of a spooky uh, variant of hey, hey. So <laughs> anyway, yes, I'm doing good. I'm, fe- I'm getting into the spirit. Uh, just today I uh, was doing the grocery shopping, and they had some tiny pumpkins for sale. And so I thought uh, I would, that would be a nice surprise for my three-year-old, and uh, and she loves them. So you know, we're feel, we're feeling it. We're feeling the vibe over in the household. Oh man! Well, yeah, I, I I decided she might like them because on our walk earlier, she tried to steal our neighbor's pumpkin. So, oh okay, all right. So she's also getting into the vibe, <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, you know, we've we've had our first cold snap, and I had uh, my first major allergy attack. So um, yeah, th- that so means you're, that you're fall a, is here. Yeah, you're an autumnal uh, hay fever guy too. That's that's my beat. Cool. Oh yeah, one uh, of one of many things here. we have in common. Okay, <sighs> so um, tonight what we're doing is discussing the works of Ambrose Bierce, and um, the there there are probably three reasons why you may have heard of Bierce. Um, He's a little bit more obscure. I was kind of surprised when I was sort of polling people uh, their their knowledge of Bierce or their awareness of Bierce. Uh, he flew under the radar. Uh, I, I thought hmm. he would be a little bit more cultural, re- culturally relevant or, or at least culturally known. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he seems to be you know, still pretty obscure. He, um, you, you probably know him from maybe three three things one is the occurrence at owl creek bridge uh that's kind of like a high school staple or at least it was when i was in high school uh from the kind of tutoring i've been doing recently it seems like it's dropping out yeah but uh occurrence at owl creek bridge is sort of the classic uh he was dead the whole time right um it's about a soldier imagining in the last minutes of his life that he gets out of the hangman's noose and runs away and makes it to safety when in reality those are the the last 30 seconds of his life as he's you know his neck is being snapped famously Uh, uh famously ripped off by jesus in the last temptation of christ (laughs) that con man such a (laughs) um <clears throat> anyway, so you you might know that one. Uh, he kind of came back into focus uh, a few years back with the first season of the HBO show True Detective. Um, oh, yeah, it, yeah. The it was a, a a sort of noir series featuring these two detectives in Louisiana hunting a serial killer, and the serial killer's sort of supernatural mythography connected to some of the stuff that um Bierce inaugurated and then got picked up later by other authors um Mm -hmm. it was at chambers who did the king in yellow sort of built on some of the 
at, at least the names and the the mood that was sort of dropped by Beerus in a couple of his fables and fantastic tales. And then that became, I, I guess, what's known as the Haster mythology, which um, mm-hmm. gets adapted by H.P. Lovecraft and others as part of this sort of like otherworldly, you know, crazy, weird fiction nihilism, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm losing my articulation, but it's been a long day. And then um, you might also know him because he disappeared. Uh, he, he famously disappeared. They assume he died in 1914. They being most historians and literary historians. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a veteran of the Civil War. Uh, he'd been a soldier for much of his early life. And he still, in his late life, had that desire to, you know, I guess in his own terms, see the action. So when he was in his 70s, he went across to Mexico to report and observe on the um, Mexican Revolution. Mm -hmm. And he disappeared. Uh, There are several sorts of claims for what may or may not have happened to him. But most of the sources that I was checking out were pretty sure he died in this one particular battle. The The details aren't known, but um, it, it's most likely that he was shot by somebody at this particular event. Um, so I think there are a couple of, you know, Unsolved Mysteries type programs out there that, yeah. you know, try to get into what happened to Ambrose Bierce. Um, uh, there's, a uh, uh, a novel by Carlos Fuentes called, uh, El Gringo Viejo, the old gringo, um, sort of mythologizing Beers and sort of claiming that maybe he made it out and is wandering around the Andes somewhere. Um, the sequel to Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, Dust Till Dawn, it was one of the sequels, goes back to the early 20th century, and I believe casts Bierce as a vampire hunter in Mexico. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so he pops up just as a, a, a sort of weird point of reference in in a couple places but um you know the mythologization and the mythography and stuff like that um it it seems i mean he most likely died in 1913 or 1914 and it's it's sad it's tragic but it also seems to have been something that he was driving towards i was gonna say it seems like that's what he was looking for you know 71 years old doesn't speak any spanish (laughs) <laughs> and basically just wants to go see people shooting each other. Yeah. Um, but I, I've got a, a scholarly source that kind of takes on part of that attitude that, that he had. Uh, hmm. So we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, in any case, th- those are the three things that – or the three ways you might know about Beers. And, and there's possibly a fourth. He wrote uh, a column – for a San Francisco newspaper and then collected a bunch of the entries and put them together as this sort of cynical, satirical, darker Mark Twain type work called the devil's dictionary. Yes. And that's um, where I know him from. Uh, that was 
my total exposure to Ambrose Bierce prior to reading these stories for recording today was uh, I had been on a big Mark Twain kick and was kind of interested in the in the 19th century American satirical scene. And so it got pointed to the Devil's Dictionary, which which is a it is hilarious. I mean, it's really uh, it's, you know, comedy ages very poorly. I think we've probably discussed on the cannonball before. Um, but, uh, the, the devil's dictionary still has some teeth. It's really, it's, it's worth your time. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's very acidic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read significant entries and it's like, ah, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, he was a, a misanthrope's misanthrope. He knew Twain. Uh, I'm not sure. <clears throat> I'm not sure how well. But they came across each other. Uh, Twain was a California guy. I think that sometimes gets missed. Hmm, yeah. But, um, they, not they to uh, not to astute viewers of Star Trek: The Next Generation who would remember that two part <laughs> episode where uh, Data the robot goes back in time and uh, meets Mark Twain in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hadn't seen that one. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> but uh, the 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 thing I think we should do is give a little bit of background of Bierce, give a little bit of the, the, the biography, and then look at a sort of handful of stories that <clears throat> excuse me, signify sort of where he fits into the American Gothic tradition. Because I think that's really where it comes down. When all is said and done, he's a Gothic writer, but mm-hmm. an American Gothic writer. Uh, last year when we were doing this, you know, we had a discussion about... Um, sort of the roots of Gothicism in, in the British novel and yeah. the Gothic as this kind of European tradition. And one of the things, all right, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but one of the sources that I was reading was making the case that American fiction, um, by way of its just initiatory figures, is Gothic in nature, like so much of American literature is mm-hmm. gothic in nature due to, you know, the, the the national character, but also due to these kinds of figures that emerged as the sort of prototypes. And um, Beers really fits that tradition, whether he's writing about the Civil War, whether he's writing about soldier stories, or whether he's writing about these weird horror tales, mm-hmm. uh, ghost stories, or whether he's writing about these fantastic fables, he really fits into this sort of American gothic tradition. And and we can sort of talk about what that means. Yeah. But uh, before we go any further, I, I kind of want to give a shout out to uh, a friend of mine who ushered this project into being. Um, I, I'm 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 Twitter friends and online friends uh, with uh, this guy who goes by the handle Cisco Fanatic on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> yes. Look him up because he's very very funny. <laughs> Um, he takes the bizarre, weird, cheerfully nihilistic uh, sayings of the podcaster Eric Siska from We Hate Movies and then cuts them up and truncates them, decontextualizes them, and retypes them on Twitter. And they're just like these hysterical nihilistic koans that just pop up. Um, and dad jokes. And, yes. Uh, he's, he's a big... Um, the, this friend of mine uh, who who does this is uh, a big fan of weird fiction, horror fiction, and mm-hmm. Ambrose Bierce. And he said, you guys, you know, you really should think about doing something on Bierce. I'd love to see what you have to say. 
And um, he recommended a couple of stories and sort of helped frame them for me and think about, yeah. you know, how they work. So this really is, um, you know, going out to him. He, he, he really helped me see Bierce in a, a sort of fantastic and new and interesting light and guided me into this. So I, I, I really yeah. want to thank him for it. Um, so Bierce was from Ohio. Uh, his parents had been pioneer settlers. And they were poor. Uh, they they realized by the time they had beers, he was one of, I think, 13 kids. But they realized hmm. that the time that they had Ambrose, that um, <clears throat> their prospects really weren't going to improve that much. Yeah. But they were literate. Uh, his, his father was, I guess as educated as you could be under those circumstances and he could read and write. And so he, he, he figured it was important that the kids should read and write. So they, they had an education. All right. Um, in 1846, they moved to Northern Indiana and then in 1859, uh, Ambrose Bierce joined the Kentucky. Uh, he went to the Kentucky military Institute. I don't believe he graduated. We'll, we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Hmm. But um, he, he went there and instead of graduating, he signed up for the Union Army in spring of 1861. Um, yeah. In high school, like again, he, he was educated, which was kind of uncommon at the time. But in high school, he worked uh, on an anti-slavery paper. Hmm. Um he appears from what I could gather, he appears to have been interested in the anti-slavery cause early on. Um, there was some kind of early patriotism and some kind of, I guess, belief in heroic soldiering. Yeah. A lot of that goes by the wayside by the time he's actually involved (laughs) in the fighting. Yeah. Um, but this is a weird oh yeah sorry he learned the craft on the job and that's going to become important uh that's what one of my sources like one of my main sources was sort of articulating was that he always learned the craft on the job soldiering okay he did a couple years at the military institute but he learned i guess the work of being a soldier by being a soldier. He learned the work of being a journalist and an editor by being a journalist and an editor. And he's got kind of this autodidact's edge yeah. um, that, that sort of, you know, adds to some of his cynicism. All right. Anyway, lurking back there is his uncle Lucius. Um, uncle Lucius was a militant abolitionist who armed 180 men with sabers and took them to Canada to liberate Canada from the British. Hmm. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> he came back with a bunch of swords and 50 men. Yeah. Um, he, he armed them with swords and uh, took them to fight against dudes with guns. Uh, funny thing about those swords, though... You want to know where they ended up? Where's that? Kansas. Ah, uh, yes. When John Brown was coming through, he met Uncle Lucius, yeah. who provided him with the swords that he used to massacre. The... <laughs> you oh, know that yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, okay. wow. So that goes back to Beers. 
All right. Anyway, um, <clears throat> he enlisted in the Indiana Infantry in 1861, and um, he fought at a lot of major battles. Um, he was at Shiloh. He was at Chickamauga. He was at Lookout Mountain. He was at Missionary Ridge, and he was at Kennesaw. So hmm. he saw a lot of action. Um, he was disabused of really any notion of sort of soldierly heroism. Yeah. Any notion of, I guess, patriotic duty. He, he turned pretty cynical from everything that he saw. And he kept reenlisting. Huh. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of amazing, like losing any kind of sense of the redemptive power of soldiering and yet continuing to, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Huh? Yeah. So, um, the, the, the source that I was referencing, um, it's this great essay called American Idiot, uh, by a scholar <laughs> named Elmer from, uh, I, I believe it's Jonathan Elmer from American Literary History. Uh, it, it does this interesting job of putting Beers into perspective. It's not that he believed in soldiering. It's not that he believed in war. It's not that he believed in the Union. In fact, there are some pretty damning letters where he says, yeah, I don't really think that there's much to the union i really don't care what happens what he seemed to believe in was this kind of ideal of professionalism um Hmm. and that seems to be the parallel or at least elmer reads that as the parallel between his soldiering career and his writing career um as a soldier he worked as a topographical engineer and that also plays – he was apparently very good at it, and he worked as a surveyor after the war. Um, <clears throat> that plays into this thing that keeps coming up in the fiction. I Like, once you see it, you can't not see it again and again and again and again and again. He's very concerned with what we can observe and what we make of the observations mm-hmm. and trying to get as good a view as we can for for what's going on while realizing – that ultimately we can't get any view at all. So it's this kind of frustration. <laughs> um, and yet the tone of all his, his stories is mostly ironic. There are some that are really tragic and really sad, but a lot of them are, I mean, some of them are just downright funny. Yeah. They, aside from being nihilistic, I mean, they're nihilistic, but they're also funny and weird and extraordinarily ironic. But, hopeless you know Mm -hmm. okay in 1864 he got this um severe head wound uh in battle he suffered from sort of i don't know if it was headaches or temperamental things maybe he was sort of like phineas gage I, i couldn't quite get a handle on exactly what that entailed but he had complications due to his head wounds you know his entire life uh, he re-enlisted and was discharged <laughs> in the spring of 1865. Yeah. So, you know, even though he's a complete cynic about anything he's doing, he still does it. All right. 
after the war, he was really pretty restless and moved around a lot, finding odd jobs here and there. Like I said, he worked as a surveyor. And uh, he took up this position with the military. He was promised that he would be promoted to the rank of captain if he traveled all the way to San Francisco and sort of took up this post there. Um, and it was an arduous journey. Yeah. It was a rough time. And he kept uh, his journals the whole way there. <clears throat> he gets there. And they say, well, we can't really make you a captain. Sorry about that, but we'll make you a second <laughs> lieutenant. And so he gets pissed off and quits. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so while he was there, he worked as a night watchman. And that was sort of like his his main income. And on the side, he starts uh, basically returning to journalism, which is what he really wanted to do. So he starts writing sketches. He starts writing stories. He starts writing... Um, just anything and everything and starts placing pieces. Uh, he, his essays and sketches start to be published. And in 1871, he publishes his first piece of fiction, which is The Haunted Valley. Um, mm -hmm. That's his first short story. And I'll, I'll speak a little bit about that later. Okay. He married and moved to England and appears to have liked England, but his health suffered. Um, he had two kids and it was in England that he really sort of read as widely as he possibly could in whatever was available to him. It's sort of like yeah. the autodidacts, I have to make up for time kind of thing. Yeah. And <clears throat> he, he sort of developed his own sense of the rules of the craft and what's worthwhile and what good writing entails and so on and so forth. And like I said, it was that adherence to the rules. Uh, he was a really sharp critic. Uh, hmm. sharp not necessarily as in very insightful but as in very cutting let's put it that way yeah, yeah. Um, he he was sort of like Poe in that regard that you know king of the hatchet job and he had his own sort of ideas about what the 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 craft entails and anything that didn't fit his idea was necessarily you know just garbage um Anyway, his wife wanted to go back to the U.S. and took the kids, and so Bierce moved back uh, a little while afterwards, and eventually he was made editor of the one of the major papers in San Francisco. Um, it was a Hearst paper, and this is the weird thing. he Hearst liked him, but he didn't tow the party line. Yeah. Um, he was he was virulently against the Spanish American War. He thought it was a, a stupid stupid endeavor. Yeah, which was of and, course famously um, a, uh, a basically a Hearst Media production. You know. Yeah, I mean, like the the Hearst papers were basically the Fox News of yeah. of the day. Um, if you can imagine um, a curmudgeonly Fox News anchor or or programmer with, I guess, a modicum of um, dignity. I, yeah. That would be yours, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, um, to, to get back to it, uh, yeah, so he didn't necessarily tow the party line, but he was a muckraker. Um, at one point, he traveled all the way to D.C. on her dime to break up this, um, I can't remember the details of it, but there was going to be this 
um, it was basically a boondoggle. It was the railroad magnates who were the idiot bastard sons of idiot bastard sons who had inherited, you know, tons of wealth, making tons more wealth by getting tax breaks to, mm-hmm. um, you know, build railroads and, you know, abuse workers and do all that fun stuff. And um, he went and disrupted a particular bill that was essentially just a, a pile of graft. <laughs> Um, yeah, by yeah, introducing it to the public and doing all this other stuff. So he he was a muckraker and he was a cynic. He he was a troll, uh, absolutely. Um, he was sort of one of those guys. Whatever it is, I'm against it. You know. Yeah, he, yeah. He hated the labor movement, but he also hated the robber barons. Um, he didn't like the slaveholders, but didn't think too much of the enslaved themselves. Um, hmm. he, you know, he hated all sides, uh, just an absolute cynic and there was no pleasing this guy. Um, yeah. it, it's just a shame that he lived so long before Twitter because social media was was made <laughs> he, for this guy. Yeah. He really would have uh, caught into it. I mean, they really, I, you know. I get the sense that he he might have become one of those. Uh, he might have gone through a phase in the two thousands of being one of those edge lord libertarians. Um, <laughs> but he also seems a little smarter than to actually commit to uh, to that particular ideology. Yeah, um, he, flirt with it and then turn on him and rip him to shreds. That's uh, right. Anyway, <laughs> that that seems to have been his mo. So anyway, from his wife. Most likely, okay, this is up in the air. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. Maybe she actually was cheating on him. Um, Uh, It's not quite sure, but they had a rift and separated. Um, 1887 to 1899 are his, that's his period of major writing. Um, That's when, okay, 1892, he publishes uh, his Civil War stories. Uh, those are tales of soldiers and civilians. And most of the critical uh, response that I saw was geared towards that. Um, his horror stuff is somewhat neglected, but he, in 1892, he also publishes another book called Can Such Things Be? Uh, such a great, stupid time. <laughs> but that's pretty much the collection of, of most of his horror writing. Um, yeah. And then in 1899, he publishes Fantastic Fables, which is more of the fantastic, the weird, and the the horror stuff. Um, 1888, he separates from his wife. Um, 1899, uh, one of his sons dies as the result of a duel. Um, I think he'd accidentally killed the woman he was dueling over and then got shot himself or shot himself. Uh, I read two different accounts and hmm. um, died as a result of that. He also shot the other guy he was dueling with. Didn't kill him, though. Yeah. A- at least I couldn't find that he killed him. Anyway, um, I-, I believe his other son also died. It- I mean, it was just sort of like tragedy after tragedy. It just... It- Hmm. If you can make a, a, a curmudgeonly cynic even more curmudgeonly and cynical, you know, his life was the thing to do it. Um, and then in 1913, he crosses to Mexico to see the action and just disappears. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, that that's where we end up. All right. 
what he was doing was adapting gothic conventions to the west and so you've got a lot of the same kind of stuff that you see in european gothicism Mm -hmm. but translated into this american western frontier atmosphere so instead of rotting castles you've got old shacks of crazy mountain men who went out and live alone doing what have you um you know instead of um disputes over you know the rightful heir to the land you have this sort of weird return of the repressed where there's something in the landscape that is coming back yeah um either as revenge for um certain kinds of of atrocities or is something that is a kind of check to this enlightenment idealism mm-hmm. that was you know that that's always sort of a part of American culture and that really kicked in with Manifest Destiny. Right. Like, I mean, the entire like ideological project of the United States was, you know, encapsulating the idea of taming the continent, right? Like you were going to take a wild landmass and apply enlightenment uh, uh, processes and, uh, and, and ideology to it. I mean, to the extent that like, of course, you know, what's more, what's more enlightenment than taking the vast and varied continent of the United States and carving it up into perfect squares, like yeah. Wyoming and Colorado, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I I owe a lot of these observations to um, the Wiley Blackwell's Companion to American Gothic, edited by Charles Crow. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the sources that I sort of consulted. It doesn't have a lot to say about Bierce, but it has a lot of contextualization of why the Gothic is so much a part of American literature. Um, one of the things that's always back there in American writing is the, well, they're the two things, the sort of twin atrocities on which the, the, the nation was built, the, the atrocity of enslavement, the, the Mm -hmm. one genocide, and then the atrocity of the dispossession of the people who are already here, the other genocide. Yeah. You know, there, there's sort of two genocides that are the inciting incidents for the nation. And we culturally, we've never gotten a handle on that. Yeah. I mean, it's especially Um, it's especially weird living where I do in Alabama. Right. Where it they went hand in hand. You know, Andrew Jackson waged the the genocidal ethnic cleansing campaign of the Red Stick War against the Muscogee people here in uh, here in Alabama, uh, dispossessing them, ejecting them from their lands so in order that it would then be settled by uh slave plantation agriculture like yeah. it was like the, the one genocide was made in order to create a space for the continuance and and really the 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 acceleration of the other with the with the uh, acquisition of what are called the black belt lands uh here in yeah. alabama and mississippi um and so it's very bizarre like sometimes like uh well like for for example where i work the uh this the 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 municipality i work for there's a historical marker talking about like the first settlers arrived here in 1822 blah 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 and you know it seems kind of anodyne but then you think like 
oh, right, because in 1818, <laughs> you know, the actual people who live here were murdered and driven away. Uh, yeah. It's very odd. It's 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 a well, it's like a ghost story where you never even know the I don't know. You never see the ghost. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. You're jumping straight into beers. And that's that's really, excuse me, that's really what I think is going on in so much of his writing, or at least the writing about the frontier, that there's always this sense that there's something lurking here that was here before Mm -hmm. that recognizes the, the dispossession and, and, or, or that does not recognize the kind of uh, or d- doesn't really care at all for the kind yeah. of ideals that that you know you're you're trying to put up there right that just ex- exists orthogonal to them like it, it can't yeah. bother to to, in, to to interact with it in any way even even to oppose it necessarily like not, not oppose it like consciously opposing it. it's just doing its thing and you got in the way yeah, which leads into that discussion of weird fiction. One of Bruce's uh, mm-hmm. greatest admirers was H.P. Lovecraft. And, yeah. you know, when we did this a couple of years back, we talked to uh, Ben Jacobs about, you know, his love for Lovecraft and what Lovecraft is and how Lovecraft operates. And, um, yeah, that kind of nihilistic vision, that, that unconcern that the cosmos has for whatever intellectual rational reasonable understanding of the world that you might want um it's it's yeah the universe don't care right it's operating in in a completely different level and it's that nihilistic otherness which you know is really rooted in beers um what i think is significantly different though is that okay I, i I, I'm I'm taking the piss a little bit out of beers for for sort of mocking that autodidacts adherence to these <laughs> self developed rules, but yeah. the one thing that I really started to notice is if you take as a given his ontological epistemological skepticism. Right, that skepticism mm-hmm. about what we can know and what we can understand. If you take it as a given, and then look at the way he writes about sensory detail, it's really fucked up. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's just. <clears throat> excuse me. It's just stylistically strange. Um, it's almost impressionistic in this way that Joseph Conrad can be, hmm, except. Yeah. The impression, and I'll explain what I mean by that later, but the impression that he makes is one that tries to tell you that you're sensing something, but then whatever it is that you're supposed to be sensing is not accurate, comprehensible, understandable, or right. Yeah, and that, and that's clear. I mean, there's the bright red through line to like Lovecraft and uh, or like Clark Ashton Smith, right? Like that kind yeah. of that that attempt at well, like you said, impressionistic, like to create the mood of uh, understanding that you're being faced with something that you're, you're the actual manner in which you can grasp the universe cannot handle. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
And it's weird because the 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 essay by Elmer that I was um, referencing earlier, American Idiot, it's mostly concerned with his Civil War fiction. And mm-hmm. Elmer does an analysis of Frederick Jameson uh, writing about uh, Frederick Jameson is a sort of famous Marxist literary critic, if you know your Marxist literary critics. Uh, he wrote the <laughs> giant tome Postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capital. Uh, he, Jameson has these observations about writing about violence, about how it becomes non-narrative. Yeah. That there, there are certain kinds of writers who, when they write about violence, capture it in a more realistic way because it, it becomes non-narrative. It becomes fragmented or disjointed. And you're not able to account for um, everything that goes on. Uh, Bierce does that in his Civil War writings. And Elmer draws the, the, the title from an analysis of the word idiot as it's used in 19th century parlance. Uh, Hmm, Bierce wrote a a story called Chickamauga. It's his other most uh, anthologized piece, but it's basically the, the war as experienced by a deaf mute child. Hmm. And he, he writes about the battle in this way that is, is disorienting because it's so defamiliarizing. Like, yeah. what is it to experience this thing without the noise of it and to see these people behaving in this particular way? It's very dreamlike and strange. Um, part of what he's trying to articulate is the incomprehensibility of violence, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so much of the same stylistic stuff that Elmer and Jameson were pointing out occurs in the horror fiction. But in the horror fiction, it's not necessarily violence. It's it's everyday occurrence. Mm-hmm. When you see it, do you see it? When yeah. you experience it, you do and don't experience it. And th- these stories are are deceptive because they're they're short. I mean, they're really brief. You can get through they're, a yeah. ton of them in an afternoon. They're very uh, economical was really kind of the, the, you know, well, that's a rather, you know, non poetic yeah. word to use, but I, it, it was, it clearly like was very honed. It was, it was really pared down. Um, I, I think to terrific effect, really. I mean, it's, they're great. Like so these bite-sized chunks of dread. You know? Yeah. But then at the end of it, oftentimes you sit there and go, well, what the hell did I just read? <laughs> Like, yeah. what what exactly happened it was very much like um it was very much like poe in that respect and, and i know of course like you know that's the obvious connection you're going to draw like you know beers was building on on poe or kind of you know taking off from kind of kind of themes that uh you know poe sort of generated for the american gothic but just from a stylistic standpoint it really it very much reminded me of like say you know um or like the fall of the house of usher or something mm. where the pace is such that it, it, it feels like things like, you know, they're, they're going along at, you know, fairly good clip and you're enjoying yourself. And it, it very abruptly ends in a, in a kind of spectacular <laughs> manner or, or rather kind of like rug pulled out or like, is just like, Oh wait, is that it? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and and, and and maybe that's you know it's it, i get to think i don't know what kind of the scholarship has been on this but like I, you know is that part of the the writer's you know tool shed to create whatever affect he's looking to create right like a kind of uh disorientation maybe yeah i mean the, I, I think disorientation is what he's going for in the best of the stories Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that that's our, our jumping off point into talking about the stories themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, we, we can we can demonstrate, dear audience, examples of what we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, I think the one – all right. The, there are a couple of them. Heidi the Shepherd uh, mm-hmm. had legs because that's where you get the first mention of Haster. It's – it's a fable that he wrote. Uh, it, it's really kind of simplistic. It's it's a sort of cynical fable about um, this mythical shepherd's search for happiness, and it keeps it sort of comes embodied as a woman, and then keeps disappearing right when he gets close to it. Uh, yeah, it keeps promising him everything, and <laughs> delivers and nothing. Then the, and well, and I think it's 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 the moment he interrogates it. You yeah, know, she she disappears. Yeah. Exactly. So um, anyway, it, it, it's important because it's where this um, this God Haster first appears. And it seems to have been just kind of like a tossed off reference that Beers sort of came up with. Mm-hmm. And, and the same kind of goes for an inhabitant of Carcosa. Um, but inhabitant of Carcosa, like, okay, I think the, the mythology that chambers and others developed around this sort of place carcosa is um it's kind of its own entity and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the story itself right which which has very like i mean it it's mostly just a name in the story yeah um and and the 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 bones of the story are really pretty simple uh this this first person narrator wakes up and doesn't quite know where he is and he sees a bunch of rocks around and he's trying to figure out you know what's going on and he sees a path and it's night and he thinks he recognizes some of the stars and um then he realizes that he's dead Mm -hmm. uh he must have died he mentions an illness and he says he must have gotten away from you know the people who were keeping him in bed and now he realizes that he died he succumbed to the illness all right, the 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 sort of simplicity of this the plot aside, look at the way this is written. Okay, mm-hmm. this is from the very beginning. Pondering these uh, those words of Holly, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning as one who, having an intimation yet doubt, uh, yet doubts if there be not something behind other than that which he has discerned, I noted not whither. I had strayed until a sudden chill striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. <clears throat> um, okay. It begins with an epithet uh, attributed to Holly, this other sort of prophet figure or something like that. But it's the sensorial detail which I find so fascinating. I had strayed until a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. Um, mm-hmm. suddenly you're hit by a cold wind in the face and you have a sense or an understanding or an intuition of your surroundings. 
are are you being shocked into observation is it that physical sensation is coming first and then you're experiencing the place how are you experiencing the place what does this mean yeah you know it would seem to be a concrete detail but there's so much of this that um that is just off on every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain covered with a tall overgrowth of sere grass which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind with heaven knows what mysterious and disquieting suggestion Protruded at long intervals above it stood uh, strangely shaped and somber colored rocks which seemed to have an understanding with one another and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance as if they had reared their heads to to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. Um, There's this bizarre personification of the rocks themselves what you Mm -hmm. figure the rocks are by the end you understand it as the narrator understands that the rocks are tombstones uh with inscriptions on them and his name is one of the inscriptions um from the very beginning the evidence is there if you could read it but you can't read it um at the same time there's this weirdness in the personification Mm -hmm. right (laughs) Uh, if he's such um, a realistic, thoughtful craftsman, why go on and animate the headstones? And this is what I was talking about when I was saying that there's something impressionistic yes. about it, but impressionistic in that way that wants to impart a sensation in order to obscure the sensation, which is what Conrad does in Heart of Dark does. Yeah. I, I, something I would connect it to is in the, uh, the story, uh, the, uh, McHagger Gulch. Yeah. McHagger uh, Gulch. Where, McHagger Gulch, where the, the narrator describes an, a visionary experience that takes place in this isolated rundown shack in which it basically operates as as a dream you know he's he's fallen asleep in this shack that he's taken shelter in um at a long way from home on when he went hunting and stayed out too late um and what you know what was i mean i, I shouldn't be surprised of course human beings dream as human beings have dreamed since the dawn of humanity but the way in which Beers described it really struck home because it you know has this you know goes on at length about you know i was having this dream and i i I I knew this city and though I had never been there it was very you know familiar to me and I and I saw these people and I can't I couldn't make out the details of their faces but I saw their expressions very vividly you know the kind of how you experience a dream you know and it struck me that well that's you could I would imagine he's writing entire stories in this kind of dream dream perception yeah that that's that's really what seems to go on so so much of the time um the dream both is and isn't a reality right in, in i mean that, yeah stories. and that's what mcgregor gulch is about like you, know, you yeah, experience right. so the reality gulch, yeah, via McCagor the dream gulch is this this weird weird story about this uh a first person narrator recounts this time that he went hunting um he ended up at this um decayed old shack basically and uh it, it was sort of like in this ravine it's well known as the shack that was there it was sort of this abandoned shack so he goes in to spend the night cuz he can camp out there that was his intention anyway and while he's there he has this weird sort of dream 
of this guy killing his wife and all sorts of horrors and whatnot. And he freaks out. And the next part of the story is him at dinner talking to somebody who tells him the whole story about how the original inhabitant was this dude who killed his wife in Glasgow and there this dude from Glasgow who killed his wife. And it's basically what he saw in the dream was the ghost haunting. Yeah. And that's another, Um, that's another really funny one though, because the, the, the way that it's revealed to him that this all like actually happened, this visionary experiences that he had is he's, he's like having dinner with this uh, new acquaintance, you know, back, back in the city. And like, he's, he's, like you know he's he's finding out this like dizzying fact that like he had a visionary experience of reality that he could not possibly have have known anything about and like he's like dropping his wine glass and he's and he's he's putting pepper in his you know uh in 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 his water or something cuz he's so just driven to distraction but that's communicated to the audience by his you know the the guy he's having dinner with uh sort of lightly reminding his wife oh it appears mr so and so has uh, spilled a bit of his wine yeah, and he's <laughs> dropped like, the whole glass. He's just dropped yeah, the whole glass. It was really funny. This, yeah, it's this weird comedy. Oh, and it was Edinburgh, not Glasgow. Sorry, I, yeah. I misread my own notes. But um, if there are any um, Scots listening, I apologize profusely. Uh, <laughs> yes. No one's listening. We know, we know not to get on the wrong side of you guys when it comes to Edinburgh versus Glasgow, all right? Yeah, and, uh, I, honestly. It, I, I would say if, you know, if we ever do get caught in the middle of the throwdown, we go with the Glaswegians, all right? They're, they're yeah, tough as nails I, over there. <laughs> I spent some time in Glasgow before. I, I'm not going to mix up the city, please. I don't. Yeah, um, but anyway, uh, yeah. The, there's this weird comedy at the end of Secret of McCarter's Gulch. Uh, that what struck me about that is, all right. Part of the the weirdness of the dream stuff in Beers is always this question of what did you experience? Is it real is it not real how do we know it how do we understand what happened and the secondhand reportage at the end of the story how we hear the details of how shaken up he is by the revelation that um what he experienced in the dream is perhaps real that echoes that uncertainty it it sort of produces in you know it it opens up another level of complication of our trust of events or trust of knowing what the narrator is doing or not doing. And it, it it just cracks something open where you're like, well, wait a second. (laughs) Um, How are we supposed to take this? That, that kind of cynical distrust of our trust in reality is, is so much a part of his stories. Yeah. Um, whether it's content wise or structurally, I mean, that gets us to the, the death of Halpin Fraser, which uh, was kind of that and Moonlit Road were really my, my two favorite stories of this read. Mm-hmm. Um, Halpin Fraser, it's just weird. Okay, it, it concerns this guy named Halpin Fraser, and he's dead. Um, he uh, had been this sort of decadent aristocratic youth in the old south uh who had perhaps too close a relationship with his mother uh beers is definitely suggesting um some kind of incestuous connection yeah 
and uh, he one of his ancestors had been a terrible poet and um, he appears to have hand, um, inherited the the persona and the personality and the affects but none of the attempts at talent and he decides to go to California and then gets shanghaied um, he's uh, kidnapped, thrown on board a boat and made to work on the boat and gets back to San Francisco sort of penniless but becomes this weird kind of transient living in the mountains um, <clears throat> trapping whatever he can uh, at the beginning of the story he lays down in the dark and has this horrible nightmarish vision of this hideous thing coming to him out of the darkness that is a reminder of all of his sin and the horror of his existence and maybe it's this feminine spirit maybe it's a ghost maybe it's his mother it is absolutely unclear what's going on and then we switch to the discussion between these two detectives, one of them uh, apparently sort of like a Pinkerton, uh, who's on the trail of this escaped lunatic, going to bring him back for the bounty. And the lunatic apparently had killed a woman in San Francisco. Well, he'd killed his wife initially, escaped from the asylum, or, or escaped from um, custody. Mm-hmm. He hadn't been tried yet. And uh, makes it to San Francisco where he kills a woman and then who, who was there looking for some lost relative. And then they find the body of Halpin Fraser who may have been killed by this escaped lunatic or may not. Yeah. It's... it's but they don't know who Halpin Fraser is, and no one else really understands who he is. And through context clues, you come to realize that Halpin Fraser's mother, with whom he had an extraordinarily intense connection, uh, tried to come to San Francisco to track him down, and then um, was killed by this escaped lunatic. So was it her ghost that found Halpin Fraser in the woods? Was it the escaped lunatic? Was it what? What? What is going on here? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it sort of reminded me so much of the end of the 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 Coen Brothers film Burn After Reading, where you have this singular authority, like all of this just lunatic nonsense happens in that film, and at the end. You have this, uh, I, it's either CIA or FBI, uh, head of some division reading over all of the absurdities that just took place. And right. says, well, come back to me when this makes some damn sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's what you got. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how the story operates. But again, so much of it takes place in the dream. Yeah, and so much of the sensorial details are confused and confusing. Even to Halpin Fraser himself, 
uh, this is sort of halfway through, a strange sensation began slowly to take possession of his body and mind. He could not have said which, if any, of his senses was affected. He felt it rather as a consciousness, a mysterious mental assurance of some overpowering presence, some supernatural malevolence different in kind from the invisible existences that swarmed about him and superior to them in power. He knew that it had uttered that hideous laugh, and now it seemed to be approaching him from what direction he did not know, dared not conjecture. I mean, this is the surveyor ultimately throwing his hands up at the yeah. ability of the senses to map the terrain. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you've encountered – I mean, that's exactly it. Like, you can't um, – all the uh, – all, all, all the uh, – you know, longitude and latitude and secants and cosines in the world aren't going to help you map this out. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's utterly sensorially confused. It's so difficult to figure out what the hell happened here. And I think the, the irony of it, the real joke of it is that when the two detectives find the body, um, it, doesn't get any clearer and the two detectives are are basically hunting down the body because or, or they're hunting down this escaped uh murderer who has been hanging out on the fringes of a cemetery and the whole time they're walking through the fog and by the end of it they just walk back into the fog we're also walking into the fog. There's, I mean, yeah. none of this is any clearer by the end of it than it was at the beginning. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of like a detective story that promises you an ending and then you get the ending. That's not an ending. And you're just like, yeah, all right, whatever. And you walk on like, I, it's, it's funny, ironic, strange, and horrifying all at the same time. Yeah. Well, uh, funny you should mention, funny strange and ironic all at the same time the moonlit road was one that really uh that that one was i, I think kind of the drove the Beersian irony uh kind of in overdrive <laughs> with oh, the full yeah. revelation of that, that one that was a fantastic one i mean like death pop and fraser and and moonlit road i think are are the ones to to check out and and damned thing yeah yeah um, damned thing was really good yeah but moonlit road it, it begin it's three different narrators mm-hmm. narrating their version it's not even their version of events it's three different narrators narrating three different things that are connected but not in any way that's comprehensible knowable or understandable to any of the narrators right yeah none of them has none of them has full grasp on what what happened it's i mean i was reminded a bit you know this would be kind of hacky to say but it it was of course very similar to rashomon um yeah in that respect and not only because it's very similar to rashomon in that one of the one of the testaments that we read was delivered from a dead person via a medium (laughs) like in rashomon (laughs) which is something that that um that Beers comes back to mm-hmm. several times. Carcosa is that's right. Is uh, delivered. That's to a you. yeah. That's a channeled uh, communication there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but the the Moonlit Road starts with the statement of Joel Hetman Jr., uh, who is this rich kid who'd been at Yale, 
who gets a telegram from his father, says, come home, it's horrible. His mother has been murdered, and they never found the murderer. Um, his father's exonerated because his father has all kinds of alibis. Uh, everyone who works in the house is exonerated. Um, it's some stranger came into the house and murdered his mother. Mm-hmm. And he's out. It, it shook his father up. His father has... Um, sort of an excess of sort of the, the same kind of sensory overload that Roderick Usher has in Fall of the House of Usher. It's like too much excitement and anything sets him off. Um, they're walking down a moonlit road one night and um, his father starts saying he sees something. It's a ghost. It's a phantom, so on and so forth. Um he turns around to look at what his father is looking at. He looks back up to the house to see that a light's being lit in the window. He turns around and he can't find his father. Um, and his mm-hmm. father never comes back. So what happened to his father? Good question. We don't know. <laughs> and we never know. Yeah. That's the first strange thing. The second is a statement of guess, uh, Casper Gratan who is apparently an escaped convict or an escaped dude from an asylum uh, or mental institution who um, is, I guess, psychotic and violent, who isn't even sure of his own identity or his own past, has apparently Mm -hmm. given himself this name. Um, his understanding of events seems filtered through this kind of fragmentation where he doesn't even know for certain that the memories that he has are his actual memories, but he recounts when he was suspicious that his wife was cheating on him. He leaves home or, or he tells her that he's going away for a long, long time, uh, leaves, comes back to find her, I guess, cheating on him and kills her. And Mm -hmm. he recounts these details about going into the house and strangling her and doing what have you. And those are details that are picked up in the third testament, the statement of the late Julia Hetman through the medium Bayroll. Um, The ghost of the mother and wife murdered in the first statement comes back to tell us what happens and she's not even any clearer on events than anyone else yeah um yeah it was i think the well the the particular irony was that in the in the testimony of uh you know gaspar um he mentions that like he sees this apparition of the woman that he murdered uh and on her face the horrible recognition like he he sees like in in her expression to him like recognizing him for who he is and that's what really tips him over the edge right and in the testimony of the you know the spirit of the murdered woman she has no idea who murdered her she 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 was trying to reach out to her beloved son and husband uh and had no idea that that was the man who had murdered her uh who was who was beholding her um that was that was one that really like I was like ah goddamn Beers, you did it you threw me yeah. for the loop with that one. I love it. <laughs> but then, I, I mean, there's no connection whatsoever. There's no reason whatsoever. It's not, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then she 
recounts whatever she can recount. What happened to the dad? Yeah. She appeared before him. Then controlling myself, I moved forward, smiling and consciously beautiful, to offer my uh, offer myself to his arms, to comfort him with endearments, and with my son's hand in mine, to speak words that should restore the broken bonds between the living and the dead. Alas, alas, his face went white with fear. His eyes were as those of a hunted animal. He backed away from me as I advanced, and at last turned and fled into the wood, whither it is not given to me to know. Yeah. Who knows what happened to him? He <laughs> right. ran off into the woods. And I, I think the 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 grimmest, darkest irony in this one is she has this weird aside when she's talking, where she appears to be talking to the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you ask foolish questions about things unknown and things forbidden. Much that we know and could impart in our speech is meaningless in yours. We must communicate with you through a stammering intelligence and that small fraction of our language that you yourselves can speak. You think that we are of another world. No, we have knowledge of no world but yours, though for us it holds no sunlight, no warmth, no music, no laughter, no song of birds, nor any companionship. What is it then? Yeah. I mean, it's... It's... You know, this is what... um, my online friend was sort of articulating to me what's so fascinating about the story is that it it offers no conclusions and not even the dead have any kind of purchase on the real reality here mm-hmm. yeah you're just as lost metaphysically as you are physically right like the i i was really struck by this idea that like it's basically you know the dead exist in a kind of shield, right? Where it's this sort of dimmed experience, uh, sensationless, but vaguely conscious. But that is, but that exists superimposed on the actual world so that you don't even, you don't even get to go anywhere after you die. <laughs> it's it's just this, but crappier. <laughs> oh, there's a, uh, this is a really weird aside, but, um, you know, one of my favorite musicians for a long time has been uh, Robin Hitchcock. The yeah, sort of, yeah. Um, uh, absurdist British surreal uh, musician with a psychedelic tinge. Yes, if and, you uh, if you're if you're in the market at all for anything sort of around the universe of new wave or neo psychedelia or power pop, please check out Robin Hitchcock if you haven't already. Oh, an absolute man, absolute master of an artist. But just a, a brilliant songwriter, I mean, and just a, a surrealist, absurd songwriter, I mean, in this beautiful way. But he, uh, there was a concert film that he did uh, where he is describing this this island off the coast of England that over time is slowly disintegrating. Like it's mm-hmm. getting less and less and less and less and less. And he says what he likes to imagine is that, you know, thousands of years ago, people lived on the island and died, and their ghosts are there, but the island has eroded, so their ghosts are way up top. And then as you go down, the generation after generation after generation is lower down until the whole thing is sunk in the sea, and there are no more ghosts anymore. Only this swirling column above you. (laughs) Um, Oh, God, that's beautiful. 
I know it's it's amazing. If you want psychedelic songs like that, uh, you know, check him out. But um, <laughs> sort of what you might think about here, if the ghosts, okay, what what the the next line she says is, "Oh God, what a thing it is to be a ghost cowering and shivering in an altered world, a prey to apprehension and despair." It's the same world, just altered. Yeah, um, they're there and not there. And so how crowded it must be to live in the ghost realm. Yeah. Uh, unless ghosts can't see other ghosts. Which Damn. would be very lonely yeah. indeed. Indeed. Very, uh, very much so. <laughs> so. Anyway, the to get back to it, that's that's where Bierce keeps coming down, is that the senses cannot account for whatever it is that's going on the dream state gives you some kind of access but it's not even a reliable access because there's um not so much that you can do to prove the case now he has a whole bunch of ghost stories uh a lot of them are really pretty straightforward i mean they're almost like tales from the crypt episodes Mm -hmm. or, or comic books um they're very simple ghost stories but if you start poking at the actual writing, you unpack it, and there, the evidence at the end seems to be the conclusion, though the evidence is always inconclusive. The, the physical sensation of what, quote-unquote, actually happened is always sort of up in the air. Yeah, it's always a in question. Of, yeah. yeah, a lot of times it's sort of in a generic, cheesy way, but sometimes it's not where you know you sit there and wonder how reliable are the experiences of the characters that went through this mm-hmm. um it's it's just really weird and and it always you know raises this question of why the hell would you write this like this <laughs> yeah but i mean at the same time like here we are you know uh, 150 odd years later reading it and i enjoyed the hell out of it uh. No, I know. I, that, that's really what makes him fascinating. That's what I think sort of sets him apart from, I guess, other kinds of Gothic writers mm-hmm. in in 19th century America. There's something about his craftsmanship which is so strange. Well, like, I would I would think there's like – I haven't read enough to know, but I would imagine the kind of like – you know, this is going to be – well, we're, we're already all in for, uh, you know, specious – comparisons to popular music but this strikes me as a kind of like sort of stripped down garage rock version of the gothic mode wherein that's typically the gothic mode is sort of associated with much more kind of like purple florid prose um than than you might expect which is this is just very like it's very stripped down it's very um honed uh, it, it's the, you you see all the moving parts, but that's good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I guess to use the analogy, if Poe's the cure, then Bierce is the cramps. <laughs> that, you know, yes, it's, <laughs> it's kind of ragged end of things, and but that's also, you know, to get back to this point that that's Poe drawing from the tradition of European Gothic to replicate it. Yeah. And Bierce seems consciously to diverge from that in order to articulate the experiences of his environment. And and that's where I think it's really fascinating. 
Um, the earliest story he published, the the one that I mentioned, Haunted Valley, is worth checking out because it's it's in line with all of these observations on the weirdness of trying to suss out what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrator, it's a first person narrator who meets this sort of drunk old, uh, hermit guy who apparently is grasping for respectability. Uh, he's drunk to the point when he starts recounting how he killed this he he hates the Chinese and he hated this migrant Chinese <laughs> worker yeah. who was living with him and worked for him and couldn't cut trees right and then makes these weird intimations that he may have killed the guy and there was some other weird dude who worked for him. And the guy's drinking more and more and more, and the narrator is getting a little skeeved and is getting ready to get up to go when he sees out of this um, hole in the pines, or or hole in the the pine knot that this shack is made from, Mm -hmm. he sees an eye looking in, and it seems to be the eye of the, the migrant Chinese worker that this guy claims he has killed. And then the narrator freaks out and leaves, goes to a quiet spot to meditate, and really what he's there to do is check out to see if there really is a grave marker for this murdered um, migrant worker. And uh, he does see a grave marker, but it's for... it, it, it It's doesn't call the man a man it calls him a woman Mm -hmm. and so he's trying to figure out what this means and then eventually runs into this other worker who was employed by the drunk guy who apparently has lost his mind years and years ago but uh the drunk guy is dead now and the the lunatic guy tells the narrator that I'm sorry it's late and I'm this is a long time <laughs> but basically tells him that the man wasn't a man the man was a woman who was the beloved of Joe Dunfer the drunk guy from the beginning and in what was either a fit of jealousy or a fit of rage or perhaps trying to um kill a spider that was crawling on her he killed her and then came after the um lunatic with the axe and okay it's it's a convoluted strange tale where you don't quite get the full details or they're related in a way where you have to piece them together but there's still pieces missing the the interesting part of it is that Beers was playing on these tropes of I guess anti-Asian sentiment in the 19th mm-hmm. century, yeah, that ends up subverting them through this revelation of the true nature of the relationship between Joe Dunfer, the drunk guy, yeah, and this Chinese woman who, for whatever reason, he had to keep as a man or claim was a man. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a story that opens up all kinds of analysis for. I guess xenophobic 
uh, stereotyping, but also gender fluidities and fluidities of sexuality. Um, yeah. It's, it's the only one that I saw that seemed to entertain some of those really complicated notions. Yeah. But it's important because it's his first story. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. the first one that he published. Well, and I think I, I read somewhere that like, you know, I think part of part of Bierce's, you know, fuck them all mentality was that he was pretty staunchly anti-nativist, which was one of the major threads in or I don't know if staunchly, but he he was notably anti-nativist when that was a yeah. major thread in American politics, you know, in the yeah. in, in, in the in the middle and late 19th century where, yeah, you know, I, I think that probably came from less a matter of like less a kind of um, generosity of spirit and more a kind of like, well, you know, why the hell do you think there's any national integrity to conserve you idiots? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah I, I think that gets it. And and that sort of leads us to the last one that I wanted to discuss or, or that we sort of agreed to mm-hmm. read um, the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great one. And that also, I, I mean, that really is a classic of, of Beers's writing. Um, it's uh, uh, basically whoever this tiny locality out in the middle of nowhere could draw together to have an inquest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a dead body. It's mangled beyond all recognition. Uh, there's a writer who knew the guy, the mm-hmm. possessor of the body, and uh, he's there as an observer and to take notes and write up a story and he has some parts of the diary or they hand over the diary or he knew that the the this sort of murdered man had been having issues and had interviewed him and uh the the end result is that all of the people at the inquest including the sheriff agree to write down that this was a mountain lion attack mm-hmm. and the sheriff gets a good read of the um the dead man's journal where he recounts encountering this thing that can't be observed by the human senses. Yes. You know, it's sort of like, imagine um, the predator with his cloaking device. That's what he seems to be recounting. I mean, really the language comes that close. It it really uh, is. And, but the way it's described is, is great also though, because like it's, it's simultaneously like transparent somehow, but also obscures things. It obscures line of sight. There was a there's a wonderful passage in the story where the I, I guess it must be you know the the journal of the of the deceased man I, I forget the particulars is uh, describing uh, that he had he seen he'd seen on the on sort of the, the the crest of a rise something was was moving along the crest and blocking out stars as it walked. Yeah. And he, and he, like, you, so you could see the progression of this, whatever this was, but you couldn't see anything there. All you could ever see was stars blinking out and back. And yeah. I, it was just chilling. I loved it. I loved that imagery. Um, I know. It's such I, a good story. <laughs> yeah, that, that really was kind of a highlight where, where things really sort of become clear in articulating the inability to be clear. Uh, There are sounds that we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument. 
the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song. Suddenly, in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At no point could a leader have been visible to all. There must have been a signal of warning or command high and shrill above the din, but by me unheard. I have observed, too, the same uh, simultaneous flight when all were silent among not only blackbirds but other birds, quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. Um, There are things that human senses can't even begin to comprehend or account for, and they are just absolutely beyond us. Uh, That's what this thing seems to be. Um, and, and those details trying to articulate sight that you can't see, Mm -hmm. that's where it, it it really sort of kicks off. Yeah. That's what really pops. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you can see that as sort of the stepping stone into someone like HP Lovecraft. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that, that was really, so two, two of the big threads that I picked up in the beer stories that we read that just are a, a giant blinking neon arrow pointing at weird fiction which would emerge in the uh kind of the interwar period um in the united states were the there's this exploration of describing sensory experiences that are impossible or like mm. the sort of the limits like you're ex- experiencing something that that is beyond the limits of your own epistemological grasp yeah um and also the the uh, well, with like with the inhabitant of Carcosa, this conceit of psychically accessing a kind of time and place out of time, or yeah. a kind of mythical setting—that's something that figures very heavily in uh, in Clark Ashton Smith, especially because uh, he had a number of settings that were basically like. They, they were like in the far past or something like he had a, a Hyboria or a, uh, a kind of, or, or a, uh, like an Atlantis that must've existed, you know, yeah. like 30,000 years ago or something like that. And, and also Clark Ashton Smith had a, um, his favorite setting of mine, just because I kind of like this broad aesthetic was called Zothique, the last continent, which takes, which mm. is millions of years into the future where all the continents have sunk except for this weird new one that rose in the Southern Pacific and uh, and mankind is reduced to kind of this 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 uh admired in sorcery and superstition that which is real so that you know magic and and gods and whatnot exist but are used primarily for cruelty by you know wicked uh venal sorcerers <laughs> but but like these stories are are typically presented as like you are you the reader are accessing them via uh you know a, a madame blavatsky channeling um mm-hmm. kind of aspect which i think is a you know that that's something that has kind of been dispensed with in in fantasy fiction and has been for a very long time like but for a mm-hmm. while there there was supposed to be some bridge between your reality and this fantastic reality and, and that could be something like the wardrobe and the lion the witch and the wardrobe you know that goes to narnia yeah. or um or this this, this con- like you you have this like contact with these worlds long gone or yet to come via the you know the occult basically 
Um, yeah. So that it still impacts like the actual world. N- nowadays, they don't bother so much with that. We just understand the conceit that like, here's a place that's never existed. Here you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but that's something that really jumped out, like with Carcosa, especially like, you know, and, and like, it was like, oh, these, this is a kind of conceit and a theme that was picked up and really ran with, with the weird yeah. fiction guys. Um, and, 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 and because it was ran with, with the weird fiction guys, it's a thread that's sort of still with us today because of course their work was so influential on, you know, several generations of, of, uh, sort of fantastical literature. It was very, it was very interesting to me just as a kind of like a, as a, as a student of kind of genre history to, to be able to say like, oh man, okay. Bierce was there. He had these threads right there. Like you can, I don't know. It was, it was just kind of a fascinating, uh, kind of window into, the 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 roots and the influences and the uh well i guess to bring it back again to bad pop music uh comparisons like you know you you like i i really love shoegaze yeah Yeah. it's one of my absolute favorite kind of modes of rock and roll i I think it's it's terrific and it's the the affect is you know it's absolutely amazing so a few years ago, I'm kind of, I'm realizing just what a dunce I am about kind of the origins of rock and roll. And so I'm led to understand that Bo Diddley was one of the kind of the first practitioners, kind of one of the famous hit makers in rock and roll in the rock and roll tradition. So I go and listen to his debut single, Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. And what do I hear but this incredible tremolo effect on the guitar, yeah. right? It's 1955. We're at the dawn of rock and roll and this man invented shoegaze with the very first rock and roll single <laughs> with this incredible effect on the electric guitar and that's kind of the the same sort of experience i had reading uh reading these beer stories yeah and it, it's weird because the civil war stories seem to work the same way hmm yeah they're 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 very similarly gothic the um, they draw on a lot of the same the same tropes the unknowability of our experiences um the the incomprehensibility of violence the lack of resolution mm-hmm. um the lack of purpose it, it it's it's really weird because the horror stories and the war stories are often you know separated i, I mean beer separated them himself but published them you know, in the same year, so or, or thereabouts, so they they really do seem of a piece. And so, you know, we're just talking about his horror and fantasy stuff tonight, but the the Civil War stories are also worth checking out just because just because they operate in the same vein. A lot of times, he will pull those kinds of tricks, like pull the rug out from under you, or or give you you know that trick ending like occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> when he does that in the horror stories, it's always got this weird other tweak to it. Like, you know, here I gave you the answer, but the answer I gave you, is it even really an answer? <laughs> right. <laughs> and moreover, it can't. I can't give you an answer. You know, yeah. that's that's the, yeah. So uh, I guess that really sort of wraps up our discussion. And, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm glad we did this. He wasn't my all-time favorite, but the stories in here that were really chilling were really chilling. Yeah, and absolutely. He's also got some great funny ones as well. 
So I, I would really encourage anyone who has an interest in the American Gothic to check out, you know, Ambrose Bierce. Um, as silly as the title is, can such things be? Yeah, <laughs> just just embrace it. <laughs> embrace the silliness of the 19th century, and it will vastly improve your life. You're gonna oh, love yeah. it. Oh yeah, but that's you know I guess that brings it to a close. So uh, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this agoraphobia, and uh, I guess check out the cannonball if you get a chance. <laughs> check out the cannonball, and be sure to check out uh, all the other uh, uh, participants in agoraphobia this year. This should be it's always a lot of fun, and it's a great way to uh, if you're a listener of say one show and you haven't you know tried out any of the others on the network. Agoraphobia is always a really fun time to sort of take a little tour of uh, all the other great shows that are going on. But uh, but definitely do listen to The Cannonball for sure, though. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, and have a, a happy, spooky season, all of you guys. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.